Hi, folks. Happy Wednesday. Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. This week, we are at part four of our journey through the second volume of the Grindhouse Experience from Fortune 5 DVD. This week, we have a pair of quote-unquote shark films with Deadly Jaws and The Shark Hunter. We also have a pair of spy movies, Zero Double Seven, Mission Bloody Mary, and Number One of the Secret Service. How entertaining are these movies? Would 42nd Street audiences have embraced them? Let's find out. On to the movies. Parties are interested in getting their hands on a treasure trove hidden in the bowels of a sunken ship. The treasure is rumored to be coins stolen by the conquistadores during their voyages to Central America. Unfortunately, the ships are in a location surrounded by the unknown terrors of the deep. The trio of Hans, Peter, and Ellen have word on the location of the treasure from a local academic, but neither of them have any experience with diving. Sadly, their connection is murdered by Rene, another person seeking the treasure for themselves. Shortly after the murder, Hans, Peter, and Ellen end up working with Rene and his red-headed accomplice, Pascal. Rene says he can teach them as a diving instructor. While in the water, the trio is at the mercy of Rene and Pascal. Things get complicated when Pascal starts to fall for Peter. Then you have the Mexican organized crime under the control of Don Pedro, who wants the treasure for himself. You're probably asking how the hell this movie is labeled as a shark movie by Fortune 5 DVD. Well, it's not a shark movie. It's a treasure hunt movie that happens to feature sharks for about three minutes. There's a scene with a dangerous octopus that gives the creature way more screen time than any of the sharks. Yet, the most dangerous animal in the film is one with the least amount of screen time is what I believe to be a blue glaucus. This species is said to have a sting as deadly as the Portuguese man-of-war jellyfish. The execution of this creature looks like a piece of plastic on a string. This adds to some of the geographic confusion regarding deadly jaws. The film is supposed to take place in the Caribbean, but the blue glaucus is located in South Africa where the film was shot. The hell do I know? It's safe to say this movie wouldn't have satiated the grindhouse audiences. There is some action, some animal threats, but a lot of talking. People may have been bored to tears with much of this film. Deadly Jaws has a few other problems. Asian subtitles, bad day for night shots, lots of talking. For a movie billed as a shark movie, there is little shark action. Then there's the title. The film is billed as Deadly Jaws to capitalize on the success of Jaws. Obviously. The original title was No Gold for a Dead Diver, which sounds like a badass title. I think of an underwater spaghetti western or a nautical giallo, but money-grubbing producers will be money-grubbing producers. Director Harold Reynell may not be a familiar name. However, I noticed he took over for the Dr. Mabusa films after Fritz Lang. You better believe there will be an episode on the Mabusa films in the future. 
we run into Jurgen Gosler again. Uh, this is the man that gave us the atrocious slavers. For Deadly Jaws, he's only the writer. I love the opening theme. It's a shame there's no specific composer. The only credit for the music was Shack Publishers, which has yielded no results when searching for such an entity online. Horst Jansen, who plays Hans, may be better known as the title character in the Hammer classic, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. That has been on my backlog for a long time as someone who is a sucker for Hammer films. Han Haas Jr., the actor playing Peter, has the notorious honor of being in the Jesse Franco horror film, The Bloody Judge, starring Christopher Lee. Sandra Pinslow, Monica Lundy, and Percy Seif were part of the supporting crew, but none of their other films struck me as recognizable. Marius Wires, the actor playing the Shade of Grey character, Renee, turned out to be the breakthrough star of the film. He would later go on to appear in Gandhi with Ben Kingsley, Deep Star Six with Miguel Ferrer, The Golden Girls, yes, that Golden Girls, and Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio. Good for him. Deadly Jaws is a movie that may be guilty of false advertising. It's not a shark movie. It's an action-adventure film. Decent cast. The plot is slow at times, but that helps makes the action mean more. Uh, this one may be worth your time if you have the patience for it. Mike D. Donato is a recluse who has a knack for shark hunting. He also has a knowledge of a submerged plane crash that was carrying millions of dollars. This draws the attention of shadowy individuals headed by the likes of Captain Gomez. It borders on the same premise as Deadly Jaws. And much like Deadly Jaws, Shark Hunter can't be called a shark movie. When it comes to actual shark scenes, there may be about six minutes or so. But I will give Shark Hunter credit for being the more accurate title of the two shark movies in this collection. You actually have a Shark Hunter as the lead in the film. With regard to 42nd Street audiences, they would have been more receptive to this film. They would have recognized both Nero and Castellari from their Polizio Tesci films like High Crime and Street Law. You even have the unorthodox action piece similar to the Heroin Busters. There's a sequence that begins as a car chase, then the car chase changes into a shootout in a bottling factory, and this sequence closes with a plane chasing a boat. Castellari's background as a stuntman made for interesting vehicular chases, done exquisitely and safely. We get some great slow motion, which adds a nice effect to moments. We saw this in Street Law and the Big Racket. In Shark Hunter, there's a moment where a character known as the Killer knocks out Mike in slow motion and into a puddle. As with the films in this collection, there are foreign subtitles. The lighting of the underwater sequences are dark, almost unwatchable. Enzo G. Castellari pulls double duty as both director and actor. Castellari handles the action on both sides of the camera. This was the fifth collaboration between Castellari and Nero, enough so that Nero trusted Castellari to deliver the punch in this film. 
Maurizio and Guido DeAngelis return to do the music. This is much like their work for Atlantis Interceptors as opposed to Street Law, Watch Out We're Mad, and The Big Racket. It feels like it's background noise. Funny enough, during a bar scene, you can hear the song Brotherly Love, which was used in the Spencer Hill comedy Odds and Evens. Nero plays Mike as Quint from Jaws, but with an action hero bent. The blonde wig also almost makes him unrecognizable, yet those blue eyes of his are a giveaway. George Luke as Acapulco and Patricia Rivera as Juanita serve as the moral compasses for Mike. Acapulco represents the voices of the locals who are suffering from the conditions of poverty. He tells Mike that with those millions of dollars, he would clean up the slums. Juanita, Mike's wife, was a girl who grew up in the slums and is a reminder of the environment Mike surrounded himself with. Werner Polkath as Ramon is a real scumbag. Think something along the lines of Bill Paxton from True Lies. He's a heat seeker. His character is a sleazy rapist. He's an easy guy for the viewer to hate. Rocco Lero juggled both acting and stunt work for Shark Hunter. Looking at his other stunt credits, he did work on Atlantis Interceptors. He was a regular for Castellari as well as for Spencer and Hill. While not to the same degree of recognition as the Delacqua brothers, he deserves credit in his own right. Eduardo Fagardo plays Captain Gomez. He comes off as a generic bad guy. He was the main baddie in the original Django, which makes for a nice reunion for him and Nero. Michael Forrest plays Donovan, an unexpected ally for Mike. Forrest and Nero have great chemistry that starts as cautionary antagonism, but turns into a semi-buddy duo. Forrest is an interesting pick, considering he's better known as a dub actor for foreign films released for American audiences, especially those Italian in origin. He was one of the industry figures interviewed in the documentary Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that ruled the 70s. He works as a voice actor currently, notably in various anime. He's one of those voices you've heard everywhere, but you may not know the face. If I had to pick between the two, I would go with the Shark Hunter over Deadly Jaws. Better action, better cast, better music, and this one is very easy to find. a bombshell, Bloody Mary, the kind of a brew that hits and you catch your breath. There is yet another Bloody Mary that is not a drink, but it's a weapon of death. A strong drink, a big one, Bloody Mary. An atomic bomb was stolen and is in the possession of an international crime syndicate, the Black Lily. The best secret agent is assigned to retrieve the weapon before it can be used for nefarious means. That agent is 077 Dick Malloy. Malloy will travel the world during his assignment. Paris, Barcelona, Greece. His contact is a Dr. Elsa Freeman, who is already linked up with members of the Black Lily. 
Malloy and Freeman must maintain their cover until the bomb is out of the Black Lily's hands. Mission Bloody Mary was the first in a trilogy of Euro spy films that tried to take advantage of the monster success of the early James Bond films like Dr. No and From Russia With Love. The Dick Malloy series included From the Orient with Fury and Special Mission Lady Chaplin. I couldn't say for sure if any of the Bond films landed in the grindhouse circuit considering the high-profile studios involved, notably MGM. But with Mission Bloody Mary, I could see this playing in a 42nd Street theater and being enjoyed by the crowds. The film provides the same caliber of thrills, action, and eye candy. It is a film that one can enjoy as long as they see it as a Bond movie copycat as opposed to an actual Bond film. The gadgets used by Malloy turn out to be practical. While it would be easy to pass them off as plot devices, they serve the purposes one would expect on a general mission. He has a gun that can hold extra ammo, giving him a tactical advantage. Malloy can use a special serum on burnt paper to read what someone was trying to hide. He has lockpicks disguised as a pen. More so than Bond, Mission Bloody Mary features some amusing comedic bits. There's a cartoonish moment with a Russian general. As he pounds his fist into his desk, a picture of various Soviet figureheads fall off the wall. Malloy asks for canned hair at a customs desk, as well as running into an old flame in Barcelona. Director Sergio Greco manages to make a Bond copycat that looks like the genuine article. Greco would direct the following entry in the 077 trilogy, From the Orient with Fury. However, it would be blazing magnum director Alberto Di Martino that would direct a third entry, Special Mission Lady Chaplin. The music by Angelo Francesco Lavignio shares the jazzy orchestral motifs of John Barry, but isn't memorable. Interestingly enough, the theme music was written by Ennio Morricone. It's a shame some of the big names in film scoring didn't tackle a Bond score, be it Morricone, John Williams, or Jerry Goldsmith. Don't get me wrong, I've enjoyed the contributions of John Barry, George Martin, and David Arnold for past Bond films, but getting a big name would have yielded intriguing turnouts. Ken Clark plays the total role of Agent 077, Dick Malloy. Clark's only other credit of note would be an Attack of the Killer Leeches. He found a long career in the European film market as an actor. I don't know who the dubbing actor uh, that was cast for Malloy, but it's not the voice I would expect coming from an actor like Clark. Imagine Sean Connery with the voice of Peter Lorre. Helga Lene plays Dr. Elsa Freeman. Lene was one of European cinema's favorite vamps. You can see her in the Amando de Osorio horror film, Laurel Lorelei's Grasp. 077 Mission Bloody Mary is a more enjoyable film than it has any right to be for being a James Bond knockoff. There's good action, clever gadgets, and genuine intrigue. I would actually recommend this one. Britain's newest agent is here, and he is number one. What a performer. in high finance and valuable to Britain. We've been instructed to get to the bottom of it. Start immediately. The bloody trail of murders leads number one to the deadly Mr. Loveday. Believe me, I could pile the clues so high you trip over them and still not get to the bottom of my plan. You'll never stop me, Mr. Byrne. He had it to stay alive.
a winner in every game, and Zero is never beside his name. That was a close shave. He's number one. This bulletproof wall is activated whenever a gun is pointed at me. But it would take more than a bulletproof wall to stop Love Day. Our organization is known to its friends as Crash, K-R-A-S-H. Killing, raping, arson, slaughter, and hits. They practiced for keeps. Quality killers were not enough to stop number one. Love Day decided to send in his troops. Six dead mercenaries? I know you're licensed to kill number one, but this is ridiculous. Number one is the number one agent when it comes to being licensed to kill and super cool. Number one sleeps with his 2.357 combat magnums and both eyes open. At Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in the city of London, one of the expounders talks of corrupt businessmen that are a plague to society. Coincidentally, those men spoken about are assassinated not long after being publicly name-dropped. It turns out the speaker is actually Arthur Loveday, a man of wealth who somehow benefits from these individuals' death. Agent Charles Bind is assigned to prevent further deaths at the hands of Loveday. Now, Bind is in the crosshairs of Loveday as a deadly game of wits is in session between the two. With aid from the terrorist organization Crash... Loveday has some serious contenders to sick on bind. Number one of the Secret Service, a.k.a. Her Majesty's Top Gun, is an amusing satire of the Bond films and one that would be appreciated by the Grindhouse audiences. There's no shortage of comedy, violence, eye candy, and taboo material to keep the 42nd Street audiences entertained. The relationship between Bind and Loveday is very similar to that of a Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon with Loveday employing anyone willing to take out Bind, all with Bind always managing to get out of the situation by the skin of his teeth, but unscathed at the same time. This removes any sense of danger or doubt to Bind's winning any fight he comes across. Then again, tension was never part of the plan of writer Howard Craig and director Lindsay Shonteth. Despite there being plenty of violence, it is comical in nature. One scene depicts a crash soldier being shaved by having another crash operative shoot at his face. When Bind is attacked in an open area, his car reveals a 50 caliber machine gun that tears enemies apart, limb from limb. One soldier attempts to throw a grenade at Bind, only for Bind to shoot the grenade, turning the soldier into orangey paste. The likes of Amy McDonald, Jenny Till, Sue Lloyd, and Roberta Gibb are the ladies paraded out, not unlike the gals in one of Chef Chantef's earlier films, Clegg, a.k.a. The Bullet Machine. I use the word taboo because there is no other word to describe the character of Stormy Weather. In 1977, a transgender henchman, henchwoman, was actually a daring concept. For a man to transition to a woman and fight other men is actually brave at a time when we were only two years removed from Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter. Sean Teff was a director who made a name for himself with B-movie material. 
He made the MST3K classic Devil Doll with Brian's Holiday as the great Vorelli. The Million Eyes of Sumeru was a female spin on the Fu Manchu supervillain featuring Shirley Eaton of Goldeneye. Night after night after night centers on a murder mystery with a transvestite judge as the prime suspect. Clegg, a.k.a. The Bullet Machine, is an action comedy focused on an inept private eye. With number one of the Secret Service, Shantev succeeds in making a Bond spoof, and I would say more so than Casino Royale with Peter Sellers and David Niven. This, unfortunately, would be the only credit for writer Howard Craig. The music by Leonard Young is a bit repetitive. You hear the same music during the fight sequences. Just as repetitive is the theme song performed by Simon Bell. Henson is clearly having a good time as Bind. He has the charisma of a Roger Moore, albeit lacking the edge of Connery. As mentioned earlier, a serious spy movie was not the intention of Shantef, allowing Henson to relish a suave, cocky demeanor. Similar to Henson, Richard Todd is having fun as Loveday, the main villain. He has a smirk and confidence about him that almost makes you want to see him succeed in eliminating Bind. Amy McDonald as Anna Hudson was a nice misdirection. She comes off as an airhead and is often the butt of a few slapstick jokes. But she proves to be able to handle herself in a fight, nobly against one of Loveday's henchwomen. When making a Bond satire, it's best to include one or two people from that franchise who are willing to make jokes of themselves. Jeffrey Keen as Rockwell is the M to Bind's Bond. His best moments are when Rockwell reprimands Bind for his overkill arsenal of the 50 caliber machine gun and the dual 357 Magnums. Keane appeared in a few of the Roger Moore Bond films as well as The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton. There's also Milton Reed as the eye-patched thug for Love Day. Reed appeared in The Spy Who Loved Me with more. Doctor Who himself, John Pertwee, makes an extended cameo appearance as a perverted vicar in one of the film's cheekiest scenes. Out of this batch of films, I enjoyed number one of the Secret Service the most. Comedy, action, pretty ladies, and the synergy of all those elements make for an amusing viewing. Well worth finding and enjoying. And that finishes this part of the journey through Volume 2 of the Grindhouse Experience. Now let's update the rankings, shall we? At number 16, we have Mr. Deathman. Number 15, Slavers. Number 14, Coriolanus, Hero Without a Country. Number 13, Carthage in Flames. Number 12, Striker. Number 11, The Atlantis Interceptors. Number 10, Three Men to Kill. Number 9, Deadly Jaws. Number 8, The Dirty Two. Number 7, The Sinai Commandos. Number 6, The Shark Hunter. Number 5, Zero Double Seven, Mission Bloody Mary. Number 4, Renegade. Number three, number one of the Secret Service. Number two, High Rate Racer. And still, number one, Blazing Magnum. 
Next time, we have our last batch of double bills before the Invisible Man episode that will drop on Thursday, October 31st, Halloween Day. I hope to have these four films on time on Monday, October 14th. Those final four films will be two superhero films, Phenomenal, and three Superman vs. The Godfather. We also have two Kung Fu films, Three Avengers and Master Killers. Nothing wrong with more Kung Fu hits. If you enjoy this program and would like to see it grow, a one-time donation via PayPal would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I have a Gmail to field any questions. All that info will be in the description. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Making the Movies. Take care, folks. Take care, folks.